This is the East TraumaCast. TraumaCast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hi, and welcome to the East Trauma Cast. My name is Dave Morris. In this podcast, Matt Martin and I were able to have a conversation about rib fracture plating with Dr. Bill Long and Dr. Babak Sarani. Dr. Bill Long is president of Trauma Specialists and the former Trauma Medical Director at Legacy Emanuel Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Long is board certified in cardiothoracic surgery and led the team that developed one of the commercially available rib plating systems. Dr. Babak Sarani is the Director of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at the George Washington Medical Faculty Associates. He's also an Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. He is coincidentally the founder and first moderator of the East TraumaCast, so his voice may sound familiar to many listeners. And uh, just to be completely transparent, Dr. Sarani does have a financial relationship with Acute Innovations, and Dr. Long has a financial relationship with Synthes. Both of these products are discussed in the podcast, hopefully in a non-biased, straightforward way, but be forewarned. Now, Matt and I and Dr. Long and Dr. Sarani all got together via telephone conference, and we'd like to thank uh, Ms. Christine Eam for setting this up for us. Well, Dr. Sarani, Dr. Long, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. Uh, also with me is Dr. Matt Martin, one of our co-moderators, and thanks, uh, Matt, for being able to join us today. For the oh, yeah, really looking forward to hearing about rib plating and practices from uh, our two experts. Why don't we start off today uh, first with you, Babak, and then uh, maybe with you, Bill. Uh, tell us how you got interested in rib plating, uh, your experience so far, and uh, why you started to do, use it in your practice. Uh, sure. So, you know, we got interested in rib plating because, first and foremost, I think as everyone knows, uh, rib fractures are an exceedingly uh, common injury that's seen in the trauma center. And really in busy trauma centers, one isn't dealing so much with one or two rib fractures as much as you're dealing with either multi-segment, large multi-segment, or flail chest or both. And the data really dating back from the early 90s up to today pretty resolutely shows that mortality is uh, nearly linearly related to the number of rib fractures uh, as well as the nature of the fractures. Uh, and then Lucchetti's article from a couple of years ago, which is also one of the East podcasts, um, showed that mortality rises further with comorbid conditions. And, of course, that population is aging, and one doesn't have to work very long as a trauma surgeon until you're faced with someone who's either elderly or has a lot of comorbidities or both and presents with significant number of rib fractures, if not a fell chest. And for these individuals, you know, you see a lot of them just simply die. Uh, the, the data is accurate with my own personal experience. And so when we looked and asked what, can, what else can we do for this cohort, the answer was uh, we've already optimized all of our medical therapies. We should probably look at a surgical solution, i.e. rib plating. Great. Uh, Dr. Long, any other comments? 
I came from a more experiential background. Uh, I did my fellowship at Shock Trauma in Baltimore where I never saw or heard of anybody getting their rib plated. What was back in the six, uh, 70s. And then I did a cardiothoracic residency at UC San Diego where I've never heard or saw anybody uh, getting their rib plating. And uh, so the standard of care was for someone with a severe flail chest, uh, they were on easily intubated and on the ventilator, sometimes getting the trach within a week or so after uh, going on the ventilator because of their rib instability. And, uh, and then two to three weeks would pass and you wean them off the ventilator and they would recover. Um, Shackford was, was in the community at that time and published a paper on the use of epidural to control the pain and they found that a lot of people with flail chest could cough and clear their lungs and uh, keep their lungs clear without having to have, you know, having to do anything more. So it wasn't until I came up here to Portland in the fall of 1983 and I had an unusual case where Two Hispanic ladies got into a fight, one back the pickup truck against against the other's chest and pinned her against a, a chest or pinned her chest against a brick wall and blew off the left upper lobe. And so I did emergency thoracotomy uh to either remove the left upper lobe or to uh or to basically reimplant the bronchus and as it turned out the thoracotomy I found that I could reimplant the bronchus and the rest of the lung looked pretty good, but she had a pulverized left anterior lateral chest wall. And I didn't want to leave her on the ventilator for any period of time, so I called an orthopod. I said, is there any way that you could see to stabilize this chest? And he had done his fellowship at Michigan, and he said he had seen Sloan uh, take a pelvic recon plate and place it vertically uh, from the second rib all the way down to however the ribs that were broken, and then pull up the, the, the flail portion of the ribs and stabilize it. And so he came in, and we took the, the stainless steel pelvic recon plate and contoured it, passed Lukey wires around the rib, uh, uh, ribs, and then pulled the, pulled the flail segment up, and it was solid. And she was off the ventilator in 24 hours and went home uh, about a week later. And uh, so it made us think a little bit about what we're looking at and what, whether or not it would be possible. So I had about a, a 50 over the next 10 years a 50 patient experience with these very unstable chest walls of doing vertical plating. In fact, I even went to the spring meeting in Chicago and presented a poster on fixation of, rail, of flail chest using pelvic recon plates with uh, vertical with vertical plating, and it took a fair amount of criticism as well as it got a lot of interest out of the situation. And it wasn't until the Europeans began to describing using uh, horizontal plating, uh, using basically uh, titanium plates, that we began to switch our technology from the vertical plating to horizontal plating. It was interesting, though, that the, with the vertical plating, uh, everybody said it was talk about lung restriction. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. So we did some studies with xenon uh, showing that, uh, that, you know, under normal circumstances, both lungs move with equal facility, and the lungs move together. They don't move independently. And then when you have a flail chest, the side that paradoxically caves in during inspiration, uh, you have about 80% of the counts going to the normal lung and 20% counts going to the, lung, to the abnormal lung. And when you fix that with vertical plating, it comes back basically to 50-50. And uh, we never got it published because we only got about 10 or 12 cases uh, to, that uh, met criteria for us to fix, fix it with that technology. But it, it showed me at that time that at least 
you can get stability even with vertical plating. So when we switched to horizontal plating with titanium, yeah, a number of the patients still complained that it felt like their chest wall was too heavy, not restrictive, but too heavy. And then we designed our own system uh, with our lab, biomechanics lab, of getting much thinner uh, plates. And uh, that became the Synthes matrix system after we had patented the system. The idea was is that you know, what you need for rib plating is that since ribs are basically flexible anyway, you need approximation with a little bit of movement to get better osteosynthesis and not so much rigidity that, that you see when you're doing uh, pelvic, I mean, when you're doing pelvic or uh, femur or, or tibial type of fractures. So that's where the, how that, I got into it by accident and, um, and, and just uh, developed the, the interest over, over the course of time. So, <clears throat> Silverbach and Bill, you know, the conventional wisdom has, for us, has always been, yeah, they get these rib fractures, they're painful, you know, it might last a week or so, even with a flail chest, and then they heal. They heal and stabilize on their own. Uh, so, so have we gotten that completely wrong? Well, I, if I can take that first, I guess, uh, I would say two things. Uh, firstly, what Bill said in his story was really insightful. A significant number of these patients will not be able to come off the ventilator because of pain, specifically because of pain, not because of pulmonary contusions, not because of <clears throat> excuse me, chest wall instability, but rather because of pain itself. And a very large number of those patients will end up with a tracheostomy tube. I think the story Bill relayed is very familiar to trauma surgeons everywhere. Being on the ventilator, as we all know, is associated with about a 3% chance of a pneumonia per day on the vent. Irrespective of whether you're trached or intubated, it's a chance of a pneumonia that is an additive risk. The common cause of death following rib fractures, whether you're uh, flailed or not flailed is pneumonia. Pneumonia is what will, kill, what will kill our patients. Thus, it's critical that we get these guys off the ventilator or avoid mechanical ventilation uh, entirely. And that gets back to Shackelford's data once again from the 70s and the 80s. We've known this for a long time. If a patient fails aggressive forms of pain control and is still facing respiratory failure because of that, and we can even talk about methods of uh, medical pain control separately if you want, but if they fail those uh, efforts, then it's extremely important that their chest wall be stabilized so as to lessen the pain, so as to allow extubation, and that the studies out there looking at the utility of rib plating all say this, that it facilitates extubation or wards off intubation in the first place. This is really, really important. The second thing I would say <clears throat> in regards to the old adage about, you know, leave them alone and they'll be okay, walk them off, is I quite literally two, three weeks ago did a uh, multi-segment reconstruction on a patient who had horrific flail chest eight months ago from a motorcyclist down. He was seen in a level one trauma center that does not allow for chest plating. They don't offer rib plating. And came in with unremitting chest wall pain. This guy is in his 40s. He's got a job, wife, couple kids. And said, I have seen uh, the pain service. I'm on gabapentine. I'm on MS content. I can't go back to work. I'm facing bankruptcy. So, And when you got a CT scan of his chest, he had extreme degree of combination, malunion and nonunion, depending on what segment 
of the chest wall you're talking about. This had resulted in chronic debilitating pain because as you saw how the geometry of his chest wall was off, one one could easily imagine how all of his intercostal nerves are on stretch and he just has horrible, horrible pain. Um, so we ended up taking him to the OR and doing a delayed um, um, reconstruction of the chest wall. A little early for me to give you the, the closure on the uh, story in that he's still in the perioperative phase and, and recovering, although he's home and is okay. Um, so I think the answer to your question is, in the majority of cases, yes. Some Percocet, a little time, patient gets better. However, there are the, the patients we're talking about are severely injured, multi-segment or flail segments, and either they're going to end up intubated in a trach like Bill's story, or they're going to end up like my most recent patient with horrific pain in pain clinics losing their job. And, and that's the patient selection that we want to go after. So that, that brings up an interesting point, and hopefully you both can comment on this. I think one of the things that's really been missing in the discussion that has uh, been occurring over the past several years is how do you select patients? What are the indications? How do you select them? Because I think that's one of the things that many of the studies suffer from is that there's uh, there's heterogeneity in who is selected and, and who gets offered the procedure. Can you com- both comment a little bit on sure. that? Maybe Bill, you want to take that? Yes. So as we just mentioned, the, the, the big, the first indication or the main indication has been somebody has a, a chest wall so unstable they, they can't go, they can't basically excrete carbon dioxide even with an epidural in place and, and you can't ventilate. Many of these people have associated pulmonary contusions and for the vast majority of them you can clear that up very, very quickly with bronchoscopy and sometimes with the BDR ventilator and then you remove the, the, the lack, of, you remove the issue of uh, oxygen transfer across the capillary uh, alveolar membranes. And then you focus on this purely on the mechanical side of it. And we've done a number of measurements. The problem of it is with, with the FEV1 force vital capacity measurements, you're looking like this, you're using the same measurements to assess someone pre and post pneumonectomy. You're looking at the total lung capacity, you're not looking at the individual component of one side of the chest versus the other. And the only test that I could ever come up with that would characterize one side of the chest versus the other was a xenon, and then they took it off the market for, for, for doing pulmonary studies. So that was one aspect. And, and largely in the last five years, we hardly don't, we don't see that many people coming in with a chest wall so unstable that they need almost immediate fixation. The other group that you run into is what I call a traumatic thoracoplasty. And they come in and they're fairly, uh, their chest wall is fairly stable. You don't need to intubate them or uh, at, at that point in time unless you're going to be intubating them for other reasons. And then around the third or fourth day, their chest wall starts caving in. And you can see the transverse diameter beginning to, to slide in toward the mediastinum. And then if you do a, a CAT scan with, uh, with, with um, biometric measurements with a CAT scan, you can see that they're beginning to lose significant amounts of volume, even up to 500 to 750 cc's on the one side, the involved side versus the other. And depending upon the kind of work that they do and, and endurance they kind of do, this two things evolve from that. They get short of breath. They don't have the endurance that they had before. Or, as, as pointed out, he, they get causalgia. And once that starts, uh, the pain clinic hate those patients because they don't ever get better. And, and so consequently, uh, with thor- thor- traumatic thoracoplasty, once they reach a certain level, uh, with or without pain, they they do have they do have a physiological dysfunction associated with with, with breathing. Um, and then the other part about it is, but they have uh, 
those who do have a lot of pain, it's, it's a very hard for issue to quantitate because we all know the patients that uh, will say they have 8 out of 10 pain and they're sitting there looking at you and you can push on their chest and they're not that sore or things like that. So it's, it's very hard to quantitate that. But there are, there are a number of a group of patients you operate on for pain, they get better, and then there's others you operate on for pain, and they don't get better. And it's a very frustrating group, group to deal with. There's a small group that, uh, indication when they have lung hernias, and there are small intercostal hernias, and then there are hernias where the whole lobe comes out, and I have now a collection of three patients where the liver comes out between the 10th and the 12th uh, rib and, uh, and herniates out into the subcutaneous space. So there are these lung hernias and liver hernias that occur in the, through, the, through the fractures of the, of the, um, of the chest wall. Uh, you know, and in that regard, what I would say is we have a protocol that tries to identify this patient because, <clears throat> as Bill mentioned, it can be a little bit difficult understanding degrees of pain and the exact cause of respiratory failure. So our protocol for uh, medical management of the patient, and they have to fail this protocol to, to be a candidate for rib plating, involves placement of a paravertebral catheter. We, we use paravertebrals instead of epidurals, but some sort of a regional-based analgesia, in my opinion, is mandatory. Um, we use the paravertebrals because we send them home with a paravertebral catheter and, and uh, ropivacaine. We will actually start them on a ketamine drip. Um, ketamine at George Washington is considered a floor drug, so there will be in a continuous ketamine infusion in the ICU as well as the floor. We will put them on round-the-clock uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. Uh, we tend to use Celebrex. Others can use whatever they want. We put them on round-the-clock acetaminophen. And then, of course, a PCA, but the entire intention here is to get them off the narcotic. If we find, despite all of these things, they're just simply narcotic-dependent um, or can't move, can't get out of bed, can't cough, can't do physical therapy, then they rule in for rib plating. And I'll say, in, in, in our experience anyway, the majority of patients can be treated this way. Uh, we don't do more than about one rib plating a month or every six weeks, most of the patients get by with ketamine, ropivacaine, and, and the other agents I mentioned. Um, we have not had too many patients require operative reconstruction of the chest due to, say, a stoved-in chest or inherent chest wall instability. What I find is if I can get them through their acute pain, I can usually get them past it. And so usually by hour 36 or 48 following injury, I've kind of figured out who's going to end up going to the OR and who isn't. And those that need to go to the OR, we will take to the OR within about two at most three days of injury and plate them with the entire intention of either extubating or not intubating at all. Well, I would concur with that. I, I basically do, uh, or our institution does possibly somewhere between seven and eight uh, uh, Rib platings a year. It's uh, and we see people uh, over a thousand patients who have, a year have rib fractures. So clearly, you know, not everybody needs to have their ribs fixed. Okay. So along with the indications for repair, what would you both suggest are good objective measures of success? Who benefits, and how do we show the benefit? Um, I would echo what Bill said in his story. You know, I think a very objective measure of success is is what we've all been saying, which is extubation. I mean, Bill mentioned in his story that when they plated that guy, he came off the ventilator, I think he said, like two days later. And that's what I find as well. If the cause of the need for mechanical ventilation is the rib fracture, the guy's going to come off the ventilator exceptionally fast. Um if you misjudge this and the cause of the intubation was something else, 
um, i.e. severe pulmonary contusion, pneumonia, brain injury, whatever, the guy's not going to come off the ventilator because your operation isn't designed to address that problem. So in my opinion, a measure of success is time to extubation, length of stay. I think other endpoints like time to return to work and whatnot are, are really important endpoints, but they're too soft to measure in the confines of a clinical trial. I concur with that. You know, Art Thomas, the San Francisco general, he uh, he talked about you know, failed chest, and he did not he didn't operate on that many of them, but he talked about those who got it versus those who didn't get it, and in terms of uh, rib fractures, and found that basically about 83 percent of people, at least in the San Francisco area, who had failed chest never went back to work. And in Oregon, I don't know if Oregon's are not much different from Californians, but let's just say they are. But we found the opposite to be true. If you manage it, uh, the pain has been outlined and deal with that appropriately right from the beginning, they may have flail, but they gradually so they gradually solidify the fractures. They don't, it doesn't occur that many non-unions, and and they go back to work, and and uh, and I think that's a, that's a, it's a useful measurement. But the the objective measurements are very very difficult, and I've spent about about 25 years trying to use a variety of CAT scans and. Uh, uh, pulmonary function measurements to show that objectively that uh, they you can't figure out what they were you know prior to the injury but after the injury do they do they uh, meet the, the criteria or meet the standards that we would have uh, for a person of their size and weight and age group. And I guess uh, one other thing I'd ask you both to comment on is that and maybe this maybe this fits into the objective measures being difficult to define, but. There are skeptics out there about rib plating, and uh, we run into them at the meetings. And I have to say, for full disclosure, that I perform the procedure. I'm a believer, and I think we're we're having a discussion amongst believers. But what would you say to the skeptics out there about the benefits of rib plating, and how how would you convince someone that it is a good procedure to do, and that patient be, patients benefit from it? Um, Bill, you've had more experience over the decades. What do you think? It's uh, it, it's a it's a tempting situation. The I have a lot of the nurses here at the hospital, you know, asking or telling patients, you know, that they should call me and, and get their ribs fixed. And then you come by and you have to sit there and go sit down with them, and go through all the X-rays and explain to them, you will heal without having to have your ribs fixed. I mean, and and so there there is a tendency to get I think overly exuberant when and fix ribs that don't need to be fixed. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I do. I do see, see that issue. On the other hand, there are people who uh, are so miserable that they are practically begging you to do something. And then the question is, uh, it's not. It's not that hard, you know, to to present the issue. Uh, I have a few in my own group who still don't think their ribs need to be fixed. And then uh, you see them three. The patients after a discharge from hospital three and four and six months later. And uh, they can't function. Uh, I have a concert pianist, for example. She plays all over the world, and she broke her scheme. Never got fixed in the first few days that she was here. Got sent home, and uh, then I've tried to sit there and deal with the issues uh, four months later. And she's got severe causalgia. We fixed a number of the ribs, and but she's not she's not back to where she was before. So. It, it takes. It, it's going to take a large series. Uh, trouble of is we don't have a rib classification system that quantitates it like the AIS. And so there is a description of where the rib fractures occur and what type of rib fracture. They're not all transverse fractures. They're comminuted. They're oblique. They're sequential fractures. They're longitudinal fractures. And these all add into the complexity of what it takes to fix them. 
And then, you know, the rib plating systems that are commercially out there are basically for the, the bony portions of the ribs. There is nothing out there that describes the success rate of people who have sternal uh, costoclavicular fractures and they have an unstable chest at, at that level, nor are there ones out there described paravertebral fractures. Now, to give an example, there, there's a guy who fell off of a dump truck and landed and went down a manhole and he basically displaced about eight ribs next to his paravertebral right off the spine without causing paralysis, but broke his transverse processes and displaced the rib cage uh, inward two centimeters. And uh, there is no technology that I'm aware of that would basically that will pull those ribs back into alignment. But he is way out of alignment. He's miserable. I've not been able to get him. I've not been able to get him comfortable with any drug regimen that, uh, at, uh, at all. Even with uh, sending him to up to the university for uh, a ganglionectomy, and that's, that's done nothing. So there are there are some very challenging cases. You know, the question I have is: Do you guys think that we have? hit a point where one could consider the modality of rib plating um, almost a standard of care for patients with severe enough fractures requiring intubation. Because if that's the case, then I will suggest to you, patients who get trached with a profoundly disrupted chest wall who are not plated prior to tracheostomy really serve as a marker of bad quality care. I mean, the, the question when a patient gets trach with chest wall instability is, was that trach preventable? Is my duration of mechanical ventilation excessively long? At George Washington, we have all but done away with tracheostomies for these patients unless they have multi-system injury or some other reason why, you know, they weren't able to come off the ventilator. But as I said, most of that latter group um, – uh, removes itself from candidacy because we plate so as to get the guy off the ventilator. So every time someone gets trached, if I were to see someone get trached and have a prolonged mechanical ventilation run with flail chest, multi-segment rib fractures, I would ask the question, why was that trach necessary? So, Babak, then, then how do you sort that out? How do, how do you, you know, convince yourself this is from the chest wall isn't from underlying lung injury or other associated injuries? Yeah, the few times I've had that, that very difficult. So one is by CAT scan. If a, if a CAT scan shows significant pulmonary contusions, and my ABG shows a big AA gradient, I've got oxygen shunting problems, that, that guy's not a candidate. He may become a candidate later on, but currently he is not a candidate. The second thing, though, is the few times I've had patients who, you know, you lighten up the sedation, try to excavate these guys, and they go bonkers on the ventilator, and they're just very dyssynchronous, and everyone sedates them again. And the question is, is this person dyssynchronous with a ventilator because they hate the ventilator, and the answer is extubate them, or are they dyssynchronous with the ventilator because they're feeling every ounce of pain because you just lightened up the sedation, turned off the pain control and all that? What to do, what to do. A few times when it's really that quandary and I can't determine which is what, I went ahead and estimated them and talked to them. I mean, you are in the room. You're the guy's awake. He is off his sedation. And I've said to them, you know, what's going on? And they, they can interact if you really are asking a very focused series of short, closed-ended questions. Are you having a hard time breathing? Yes. Is it because of pain? Yes. Then you look at the guy's tidal volumes and he's panting away at you. It's very obvious what the problem is, especially if you've already ruled out, you know, pulmonary contusion, pneumothorax, uh, delirium, all the usual stuff. So that's kind of 
how I try to shake this thing out. I really try to keep it very simple. So suppose you have someone who's uh, comatose and has a, a, a basically a stove in chest, some major significant flail, and but you expect that the brain injury is going to re- recover. So the, the question is going to be: Are you going to leave that the ribs alone, uh, leave, uh, leave him intubated because you're, you're intubating him for the brain injury, or and and then uh, or, or are you going to fix him at the same time? Still end up doing the tracheostomy because of the because of the prolonged brain injury. I would probably delay the rib reconstruction uh, until the brain injury settles itself out. I know for a fact the guy's kind of you know, awake and coming back, he's going to be okay, and then I would do that. And if the reconstruction ends up being delayed by two months or some long time because the brain injury is so severe, before I would operate on him, I would get pulmonary function tests to ask the question, is that stove in chest of any clinical consequence? You know, I've got one patient who was run over by a municipal truck, one of those big trucks uh, that city government workers use. And he never got his uh, chest plated, uh, doesn't have any really prolonged, horrible pains. He's back to work. But if you get a chest x-ray on the guy, because he was referred to me, one side of his chest is really short, very thin and tall, and the other one is more round like you'd expect it to be. So in other words, he's got a completely asymmetrical chest wall on the side of injury. Uh, he's kind of older, too. He's in his upper 60s. And much to my surprise, he came walking into my office, speaking full sentences, um, and said, I'm not taking too many pain medicines. I said to him, you know, before we do your ribs, we really should make sure there's a problem here. I mean, you look like you got a problem, but you don't act like you got a problem. So I sent him to the pulmonologist. He got PFTs. His PFTs came back 100, predicted 100% uh, prediction. So... I told him that, you know, there's no need for you, for us to do your chest wall reconstruction. Yeah, you look a little bit funny. I get that. But it's not hurting you. Why go after this? So same thing with this analogy with the patient with a brain injury. If he was, I would end up probably, if his brain injury is that severe, trach him, peg him, put him in rehab, wait for him to get better, and then reassess the need for chest wall reconstruction. Uh, maybe we could spend a few minutes uh, sort of uh, at, at the technical level. What are some pearls or pitfalls you both have learned in doing this for, for many years about techniques, uh, tips and tricks and things like that that maybe make it easier or things that you, uh, you know, if you were teaching somebody, what, what sort of pearls would you pass on? Well, I think, I think one thing I'd be curious to get Bill's opinion on is, you know, the first thing you've got to decide if you're going to start planning people is what system you're going to use. And I didn't realize that Bill had a hand in creating one of the two systems. I will admit I did not. <laughs> um, so we tend to use the U-plates, U-plating system at George Washington uh, almost exclusively. And as opposed to the anterior plates, which is the anterior plates are made by a company called Synthes. The U-plates are made by a company called Acute Innovations. I like the U-plates more than the anterior plates because I like the fact that they wrap around the rib and they basically screw into themselves. So I'm not really um, hitching my horse to the patient's wagon. It doesn't really matter to me what type of cortex they have, whether they're osteopenic or not, in that the plating system is screwing into itself. I think it gives us better stability as a construct. Secondly, I think deploying the system, actually um, putting the system in, requires a little bit less dissection because you need less points of fixation. You need two screws on each side as opposed to three screws on each side. And believe it or not, that little bit actually makes a big difference. And then thirdly, at least uh, the way my hospital worked out its deals, it is substantially less expensive than Synthes. So it's, it's more beneficial from a societal and hospital perspective than the anterior plating system. So that's, that's my first 
point that I would put out there. And then the next one I'll pose and I'll let Bill comment on as well is, in my opinion, the hardest part of the operation is localizing the fractures, identifying exactly where to make your incision so you minimize elevation of flaps and then the risk of a seroma. Um, I tend to measure off of a CAT scan, but you have to always remember that you're measuring, you're, you're going to draw a straight line on that two-dimensional CAT scan image when, in fact, the rib, of course, is taking a turn as a curve. So you're never going to be exactly dead on. If you can, if the chest wall is really unstable, and while the patient's positioned in the OR, you can push on the chest wall and feel the clicking, that will give you an excellent starting point of where to place your incision. Uh, but ideally, you want to plunk right on top of this fracture using a horizontal incision, minimize elevation of flaps, and then identify the fracture, reduce it, and plate it. I, I come from a slightly different direction. It, it was interesting when we first started uh, doing the uh, stainless steel pelvic recon plates, and then we switched to the titanium mandibular recon plates before we finally invented this uh, uh, these thin titanium plates that sent these markets now. The OHSU residents used to come down here, and uh, so in the same town, we have two com we have basically two competing rib plating systems. And then the Europeans are still playing around with the Stratus system. And there's a guy named Mike Bemelman uh, in Holland who is trying to do a comparison with all three to see uh, which one is, is going to be superior. And that, that might take quite a long time to, to ultimately analyze. Uh, address and see which one is the better system. But I think that w from the tricks that I've learned is that if, when you look at the chest and study it very carefully on CAT scans, you realize that the whole sternum is suspended from abutments that are created by the transverse processes in the vertebral bodies in the back. And, uh, and you can get displaced fractures back there. And if you don't correct those, uh, and you plate only the lateral and the anterior lateral ones, then you're still out. The person is still out of alignment, and the chances for them getting more uh, pain postoperatively and continuously is, is, is quite. I think is quite elevated. So, um, working with the orthopod, we basically use a vertical paravertebral incision for paravertebral fractures, mostly in, the, in what I call the most posterior scapulary line, mid scapulary line. And uh, that's where the curvature of the of the ribs as they swing forward is the greatest, and you have to do a little bit of contouring to get your construct to stay on that. But if you, if you line that up correctly, then it makes the the anterior lateral reductions uh, much simpler. And we've also been using more vertical incisions rather than the standard thoracotomy incisions to do multiple fractures uh, with a uh, axillary. Uh, uh, latissimus sparing incision uh, going, uh, going down from the from mid axilla down to almost to the hip if, if you've got about six or eight fractures that need to be done. So that's very interesting you say that because I've made vertical incisions to hit multiple segments. Like if you want to hit five or six ribs, there's yeah. no way you're going to get to it with the horizontal. But what I found was that lifting the flaps uh, medial to lateral to allow the length of the plate to actually lay was was quite difficult. Um, how do you get around that? You have to explain a little bit more. I'm in my so, so you've got an incision that's going up and down, right? Right. But, the, but, but your plate needs to go across the length of the broken rib. Right. And so you need to kind of lift a flap that's going more medial lateral, that's going left to right, to allow you to expose a, about a four or five centimeter length of broken rib to put a plate across it. Okay. And with the bulkiness of the back muscles in particular, it makes that very difficult. 
Well, first, I undermine the skin and subcutaneous tissue off of that. And then you basically the trapezius muscle is next. Then I'm talking about paravertebral fractures. And, uh, and so you can raise the, vertebra, uh, the um, trapezius muscle up, and that exposes the rhomboids. And you can dissect underneath of the, of the scapula and, and all the way immediately almost to the spinous process uh, for, the, for the rhomboids. And you can pull that up. And it's, I can get to the third rib with that, but otherwise you have to, to, you have to cut the, the rhomboids, which I've been loath to do. However, there are some surgeons I know in the Phoenix area who will divide the rhomboids next to the posterior border of the scapula to, to get all those ribs. I'm not sure it's all that important to get up to the, to the second rib posteriorly to fix, it, fix one. Uh, and, and then the other part, for the lower portion of it, you just pull down and dissect underneath of the of the latissimus dorsi, and uh, that gets almost all of your ribs through that incision. And when you go lateral, then it's the same. The length of the of the of the vertical incision enables you to sit there and pull the latissimus back, and and uh, the only thing standing in, in your way is the is the serratus anterior. If you pull that off of the rib cage uh, from its origins on the rib cage, that gives you the whole lateral chest wall. You have plenty of room to put your plates down, and then you just reattach your serratus anterior muscle back into its normal place. You haven't divided any muscle. You let the latissimus dorsi come back into its normal position and uh, sew that in and then put a few uh, drains in, and uh, that, that's it. So it's... It's the, the few times I've done this, my patients have not complained about persistent chest wall numbness, even though you cross multiple dermatomes with an up-and-down incision. Have you had any patients complain about numbness following this type of incision? It usually lasts about two or three months, and then it comes back. So if you do two vertical incisions, uh, they, you know, they'll have some numbness uh, basically from the anterior axillary line medially, uh, but it's not permanent. Usually that, that all goes away with time. So, uh, so that's great with the, some of those technical details, but, but I'm a novice who has never really done this. Uh, but I'm interested in getting started. So, so what's the best way for me to get started with rib plating? You know, can, can I take the, you know, the, one of the company's one day or two day courses and then, and then jump into it? Or how should the novice get started with this? Cause it sounds like you're saying we should all be doing it, which means we need to train a whole lot of people how to do it. So, so here's how I did it, because I'm, I'm much, much um, less um, – I've been doing this far less than Bill has been doing it, that's for sure. Uh, I've been playing yeah, – so, so is everyone alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I started by uh, actually calling up the Synthes Rab, and Synthes is a really good company. They've been, they've been good to me. They put on a, a good uh, cadaveric course. Uh, Jose Diaz, who is uh, one of the trauma guys at Shock Trauma, only a few miles off the road from Washington, D.C., was kind enough to come down and, and put on a course for us. And it was just me, my orthopedic surgeons, uh, and a couple of my trauma friends. So it was a very personal course uh, using a cadaveric model. That's how I started. And then over time, I just kind of morphed my practice, as I say, off of Synthes onto acute innovations. But that's, that's stylistic for reasons I already explained. I do think it is extremely important for any general surgeon, trauma surgeon, who is not well-versed in open reduction internal fixation of fractures 
to buddy up with an orthopedic surgeon. There are a lot of tricks to the trade that the ortho guys know that, that we simply don't. It's not part of our fundamental training. Maybe you can buddy up with a thoracic surgeon if that individual has a lot of experience with uh, rib reconstruction, but I opted to just team up with my trauma orthopedist, a person named Leah Schulte, who has been phenomenally helpful. And we did the first, I don't know, seven, eight cases together. Um, she would actually co-scrub them with me. But remember that each case has three or four platings. So by the time you finish seven, eight cases, you've put in 20, 30 plates and all sorts of different fracture patterns, rib by rib, patient by patient, et cetera. You've got to figure it out. And at that point, I kind of said to Leah, look, you know, you've got bigger, better uh, operations to deal with. I'll just start doing these on my own. Um, just kind of be around. The last one that I just took back to the OR, however, for the um, osteotomy and the delayed reconstruction, that I asked her to scrub again because that's a whole different animal. And, you know, I was using osteotomes and, and instruments I am simply not used to using as a general surgeon. And once again, I found that partnering with her was very helpful, move the case along, help the patient out. So I would say start off by getting a course practicing on a cadaveric model, and then make sure you've got really a, a friend who can help you out in the OR uh, right there and then, hands, hands getting dirty. I couldn't agree more. I, I think the, the courses are helpful, and the, the cadavers are reasonably good, even fresh cadavers, though. The bone tends to be a little bit more friable, so you have to pay a, more, a, little, a lot more attention to your, deta to your details. A lot of people don't realize that the rib is, is tear-shaped, and you need to put the plate, uh, at least the synthesis plate, in the upper half of it. The thing that's nice about the acute innovations plate is it has to be in the upper half because it's a U-shaped plate. Right. And so that get, gets around that particular problem. There is still some contouring that needs to be done. I, I can't speak to the acute innovation because I'm not using the product. But at least with the synthesis plate, uh, I mean, we've all not learned in anatomy that there are the ectomorphs, the endomorphs, and the mesomorphs. But there are people for whom pre-contoured plates still have to be contoured. And uh, the mistakes that I've seen is that they, people end up with the lower half of the plate and, and, it, and they put it under tension. And when they do that, over time, the, the screws either will pull out or they will or they'll disengage, they'll disengage uh, from the plate prior as, and, and just work the way off the bottom of the plate, just pull through. So I think there is some elements of being mentored. In a particular tough case, I've gone down to other hospitals in the Pacific Northwest and scrubbed in at, uh, with, with surgeons who want to do it, and, and, we, and we do it together, and, and you try to pass on some of the tr tricks of the trade with that particular technique. It's kind of fun to operate in other places, but it does help you get, uh, give them some insight you know, on a one-on-one on -one type of, of process. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And then, you know, there are some nuances based on the systems to be used. So you have to kind of be very familiar with your equipment, you know, as with any operation. So as Bill was saying, the synthesis plates are pre-contoured, but they're also sighted, left-sighted, right-sighted, and there's kind of a universal as well. Acute innovation isn't sighted. They're, they are pre-contoured. You may have to change the contouring a little bit on the acute system, but I find it less so with acute than with synthesis. 
Um, and the benefit of the U-plate is, number one, it situates the plate appropriately on the rib, so you don't have to worry about the plate being too high or too low. Uh, and two, in a sense, the, the, the plate is hugging itself. So it kind of can't, if you, if you place it correctly and you really have bicortical as well as um, bi-plate, you know, plate-to-plate fixation of the screw, it goes through and through to itself, then that, that sucker's not going to come out. I mean, there's, there's just no way that plate could pull off because you've played it to yourself on the back end. So it raises an interesting question about, again, what Matt brought up, and that is what happens with failures of plating? And I don't have many of them, but I've seen failures of the Synthes plate where they, the plate breaks, and I've also seen the Acute Innovations product break as well. And it's usually when the when the when the surgeon uh, does has doing a late uh, rib plating, and there's been the ribs were not together, and there's been some bony reabsorption at the end, and they have a gap. Yep. And when that happens, there's this constant movement, uh, that uh, ultimately leads to metal fatigue and it, and it fractures. Right. So when that happens, uh, you can either try to bring the plates together, but then you're you're causing a further constriction, and the patients will com- complain bitterly of pain because now the ribs are too close, and you you diminish the circumference of their rib cage. And those those kind of cases, you need a bone graft. Yeah. And I get I get the orthopedic surgeons involved, and we measure it out very carefully. Once uh, you know, using the normal side as the, as the baseline, and then you take the, the one that's been damaged. And you measure accordingly, put the bone graft in between, and the results can be very dramatic if if, if you allow for that that change. So, so Bill and Babak, that, that that's a great technical tip for when you're doing the initial rib plating. But now you have the patient who comes into your clinic or to my clinic who had rib plating, and they they've got fractured plate or dislodged plate. What, what should I be doing with that patient? I've only had one patient come to me with this, um, and you know it's kind of interesting because we had two patients who cardiac arrested while they were in the hospital following rib plating. They got bona fide CPR, and I was thinking to myself, they came back, thank God they're both alive and, and home and doing great. But I thought, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe what this x-ray is going to show me uh, when I look and see how many of these plates just popped off. And, and none of the plates have popped off, despite good old-fashioned CPR. So that's, that's the first thing. Is This is not very common unless you have missing bone in the middle, the gap, which is what Bill described. I completely agree with that. The one patient I've seen where the plate popped off, I think it was never screwed in appropriately in the first place. And when we got a chest x-ray, the thing was completely cattywampus. It was just off the rib on one section of it. Patient was asymptomatic. I disclosed to him what had happened, that the, that the plate has popped off. It's no longer in good, good position. I offered him the opportunity to go back and take a plate out. He said, no way. I said, you made a good decision because it's not bothering you. I bother it, and I left it alone. There's one other thing that would be interesting to see what you have to comment on. I've seen three patients now who got a basically uh, heterotopic ossifications of their entire chest wall secondary to rib fractures. And both, both of them were in motorcyclists. And they hit, and uh, they got hit at high speed and shattered eggshell fractures all the way along the ribs from three down to a nine. And so we plated them, and uh, uh, they basically turned into a turtle with a carapace mm-hmm. made of calcium and all the intercostal r- uh, uh, muscles between them. And uh, of course. Now then, they really have a significant restriction caused by that. I have not seen that or described that. I don't know if you've had this similar experience whatsoever. I don't think it had anything to do with the rib plating. 
I think it was the nature of the injury itself. I, I must admit, I've never seen such a thing, thank God, nor have I read about such a thing, and I don't know of anybody who's giving any kind of, uh, you know, one-time radiation or anything to that effect to, to decrease uh, heterotopic ossification. For yeah, well, by the, time, by the time I saw them, they were three months out or four uh-huh. months out from their plating, and they had, they had, they, you get a chest X-ray, and all the intercostal muscles are basically becoming bone. So it's wow. too late then, obviously, for, for radiation therapy. Wow. Um, I'll mention one other thing in regards to uh, chest wall stability and the ability of these plates to take weight. You know, we had a patient who uh, had a car roll over his chest. He came in with tire marks on his chest, the whole bit. And so he had bilateral flails, uh, both anterior and posterior segments on both sides of the chest. And in addition, he had a uh, lumbar fracture, pretty significant lumbar fracture. When the spine team took him to the OR to lay him prone to fix his back before we fixed his ribs, um, he immediately desaturated and couldn't withstand that positioning, and the reason being that his chest wall was, his lungs were being crushed. He had no chest wall integrity whatsoever. So they abort the lumbar case. They bring him back to the ICU. I said, okay, well, let's reverse the order. Let's fix the chest wall first, and then we'll fix the lumbar vertebrae second. Uh, the same question was posed. Well, how are you going to fix the chest wall? This guy's got no integrity. So what we did is we took him to the OR. We decided we were going to do an anterior approach to the right side, which is the less injured of the two sides, first, because he could lay on his back. Did that immediately then turned him um, right side decubitus, the right side down, um, fixed the left side anterior and posterior, and those plates took the entire weight of this fully grown adult. He, he probably weighs 220 pounds, 230 pounds, uh, without, without any problems whatsoever, and then ultimately fixed the right posterior kind of a more delayed fashion. So it goes to show you that I think if these plates are placed appropriately, um, they, they, they will immediately give you full chest wall stability sufficient to take the full human weight and or CPR. That's true. That's true. We've had a number of people with steering wheel type of injuries or motorcyclists who basically fly off their motorcycle and hit their chest against a guardrail or, or something to that nature. They break the sternum. They break the costal cartilages, sternal costal cartilages, and they break the anterior ribs usually in the midclavicular to the anterior axillary line, and they just, again, they have almost like an eggshell fracture of the chest, and they get associated spine fractures. And so we fix the sternum, but again, the sternum is free-floating, so if you lay them on their stomach, it presses against the heart, and you get basically cardiac compression, like almost like a tamponade type of syndrome. And uh, but you, if you, if this is an off-label issue, off-label thing, but you can take the plates and span the span across to the sternum from the from the uh, adjacent ribs, and that recons- that re- basically redefines your anterior chest wall and gives it stability enough where they can lie prone to get their spine fixed. And um, and. That's, 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 that's possible. We've done several, quite a few of the, not quite a few, but six of those. There was, a, there was an interesting survey study published in the Journal of Trauma. They surveyed trauma surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, and thoracic surgeons about rib plating, their knowledge of it, uh, but also their opinions on indications. And, and the results, unsurprisingly, were, were the, they were all over the map. Uh, most people could agree on flail chest. Beyond that, there was no agreement that was more than like 30 or 40% of the respondents, uh, which I think hasn't changed a lot. Uh, 
so so how do we how do we get to the place where we have some solid indications and, and we have general agreement in the trauma community for who even is a candidate for this? Well, if I could speak on this issue, I mean, I've been begging for this to happen now. We have, as I say, an AIS scoring system for solid organ injuries, and we have, the orthopedics have a decent classification system for almost every fracture known to man to every bone, but we have nothing for ribs. And you don't know when, when trouble comes, unless they send you the case for you to take a look at, you don't really know what they're plating and for the indications of what they're plating. And I would advocate strongly that we come up with a where the fractures have occurred and you can have multiple fractures along the same rib as we all know and the different types of fractures and the type of fractures they are because comminuted fractures are are much different than obviously than a straight linear fracture that's transverse across the rib we need we need some sort of universal lexicon that we can look at and and then compare and have that data enter in a database and you know what you're dealing with yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think until we have some objective way of of um, validating everything Bill and I have been talking about, although it's interesting how similar our stories are, despite the fact we're on different sides of the country and we never met each other, but until we have some way of validating this, we're, we're going to have a hard time getting the people who you know are reluctant to accept um, um, this practice based on anecdote alone to to pick it up. Um, I also just think that, you know, we need to continue discussing this as a trauma community. Um, I mean, if you were to come to my trauma center and audit my charts, you'd find a lot of chest wall injury, which you would find very few tracheostomies. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes. Uh, if other auditors go out to other trauma centers, they should ask this very same question. Why are your flail chest patients getting trached? Couldn't agree more. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode. I'd like to thank Dr. Bill Long and Dr. Babak Sarani for their time and their insights, as well as the tips they've shared for those who are interested in getting involved with rib plating. If you're looking for further information about rib fracture plating, I refer you to the Online Education Center at east.org, where you'll find an excellent presentation by Dr. David Cisla. This presentation provides one hour of CME, which is free to all EAST members and available for purchase for the general public. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.